In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. The sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Daniel Becker, also known to the community as Banjax, who passed away earlier this month. He was an active supporter of the podcast and friend to many of us. We're grateful to have been able to run his story, still beating in Sleepless Decompositions, Volume 6. Daniel will be sorely missed. We hope to honor him as we begin this week's show. In our first tale, we find ourselves in a fantasy world populated by horrifying monsters, adorable fairies, and was that a giant yellow chicken I just saw running by? Too late to tell, because now we're back in the real world. But that's the benefit of video games, isn't it? Escapism. And in this tale, shared with us by author Mr. Michael Squid, we meet a guy whose solace in video games leads to the promise of offline elation. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson and Nicole Goodnight. So forget the daily grind of real life. Log in, level up, and meet... My online girlfriend. It started six months ago when I joined a fairly popular MMORPG. It's a massive multiplayer online role playing game for the less nerdy folks. I'll just hint to which one to avoid any backlash, since they had nothing to do with what happened to me. It's a fantasy game, pretty cute and funny, and the players can join in on other players' battles and help out, which I found charming. When I began playing, I was a noob, without any idea as to what I was doing. I was running around in circles and struggling to figure out the map. After running around the same area clueless for half an hour one day, Another player with a very attractive avatar made a gesture to follow, and she led me to a plateau I was struggling to find. I expressed my gratitude, and instead of leaving, she stuck around. She then helped me with the battles in my upcoming quests and offered me to join her party, 
I was thrilled to have a helping hand in the company of another. I'm Carla, nice to meet you. The chat box displayed. It was exciting to have the attention of an actual person, especially a female one. In the real world, people look right past me. They see through me as if my features don't qualify to be worth registering. I've never had a girlfriend, and after being rejected a few times, I realized I'd rather not attempt to give any unwanted attention, let alone humiliate myself. It's nice to meet you, Carla. Thanks for getting me unstuck. The map is hard to figure out. I pressed send and waited, feeling my heart speed up. Saying the map was hard to figure out made me sound like I was stupid. I was in the midst of typing JK when I received another message. The deaf is a pain in the butt. They should have added an icon to show if it's on a higher or lower level. C'est la vie. I then watched her character perform a silly dance that had me cracking up. I can help you with some of the quests if you'd like. It's nice to actually be useful. I smiled and typed, That would be great. Thank you, Carla. My real name's Matthew, by the way. I like the name Matthew. She sent back with a winking emoji. That was enough to send my imagination running wild. Her in-game character was extremely attractive, but literally every single character in the game was, even wearing silly hats or outfits. Still, something within me stirred. Something that would continue as our online relationship grew. After a few days of playing online with Carla, helping me level up and get some great equipment, we continued to chat. I was thrilled when she told me she lived in Delaware, just a state away from me. She lived in a tiny studio apartment with her cat Smoke, and she worked retail at a clothing shop but was saving up for nursing school. She was 22 years old and into a lot of the same films and shows as me. I couldn't believe it when she made a JoJo reference or quoted Evil Dead. I was smitten. I told her my consolidated life story and described my mundane life in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. She seemed genuinely interested, and my attraction to someone I had never met slowly but surely grew every time I logged on. I began playing every day just to spend time with Carla. In the days she was absent from the server, I missed her dearly. About two months into our online friendship, Carla logged on, to my joy. But the mood shifted when she messaged me. I'm in a dark place. Can I maybe call you? The chat window read. My throat closed up at the request. I hate my voice. I stumble and trip over words when I'm nervous. I tugged at my hair in frustration and paced around my bedroom, lit by the glow of the screen. Finally, I sighed, realizing there was no point hiding behind my chisel-jawed in-game character forever. Sure, okay, I replied. She asked for my number and I gave it to her. My heart raced as the phone vibrated on the desk. Hello? I hated the way it came out. Matthew, thank you for letting me call. I, I just need to actually talk to someone. Her voice was lovely and soothing. Of course. Is everything all right? I was harassed by a customer at work. He kept asking me out and I politely declined, but he kept persisting until I threatened to call the police. I get that sometimes, but when I got home, 
I could have sworn I saw someone in the bushes staring at me. I, I'm just so shaken up. I'm so sorry to hear that. Nobody deserves that. Most men are like that. They see you as an object they want, not a person. Not you. You're different, Matthew. You see me for who I am. It's, um, it's really drawing me to you. We spent the evening talking about our hopes and dreams, our philosophies and politics. Carla told me she had an abusive mother who would beat her as a kid, a father who left before she was born. I told her of my life as an awkward kid who was just not attractive to women. She cooed into my ear through the receiver in response. You're so much more attractive than you know. I honestly can't stop thinking about you the past few weeks. Eventually, the sky began to light up from the rising sun, and I needed to get some sleep. We said our goodbyes, but ended up texting each other back and forth. She kept flattering me and expressing interest. And then a few days later, she sent me a photo. A stunning woman blowing a kiss at the camera. She was so beautiful. If I sent my photo, she'd lose interest. I responded with compliments and emojis, but... Eventually, she asked to see me. I typed some long-winded response about how I'm unphotogenic and not attractive to begin with, but she kept pressing. I took a photo of my awkward smile and pressed send. You're cute, came the reply, and I was beyond relieved. Over the next weeks, we became friends on Facebook, and I was driven wild by how attractive she looked in the photos she'd shared online. I saw her tiny apartment and her adorable little gray cat smoke. It was all very much real, and I was falling for her. Then, out of the blue, I received a text from Carla that shook my core. I need to see you. I stared at those five words with anguish. This, surely, would be the moment the magic died. All I could envision was meeting up with her, and her looking at me from head to toe before saying, Oh, aloud. I couldn't take it. My heart was so fragile, it felt like it would shatter into a million pieces at any given moment. Still, I had no choice but to accept or risk ending it all. Okay. I texted swallowing a large lump in my tightening throat. A few weeks earlier, Carla had sent me a pin drop on maps of her address, and she had more recently asked me to share mine. I'd previously expressed my displeasure of having a roommate, Pete in his mid-twenties who never cleaned up after himself, so I thought it had seemed clear that she wanted me to go to her place when I got the message reading, See you soon. I flossed and brushed my teeth after a second shower. After a spritz of cologne and a dollop of hair gel, I dressed in my best pair of jeans and a nice shirt. My heart was pounding. I sat in the car for a few minutes after putting Carla's address into the GPS, and then I shifted to drive. I kept wiping the sweat from my face as I drove. My hands were shaky on the wheel. I felt like the world was about to implode the second she laid eyes on me, yet I drove on. The scenery was a blur. I couldn't see beyond my own impending rejection. 
The half-hour drive felt like a lifetime. But finally, I pulled into a small apartment complex off the highway as your destination has arrived was relayed via the GPS. I parked and built up my courage to get out. I approached the door marked 5B, her door. I knocked and waited, but there was no answer. Carla? It's Matthew. Nothing. I imagined she'd seen me through the window and realized her mistake. She'd likely changed her mind after seeing my face or my waist. I was about to turn around and drive back. Then I saw movement in the dark room from behind the curtain. There was a figure. More just a shadow in the unlit room. They looked to be convulsing in the corner. Twitching in the throes of what appeared to be a seizure. My heart pounded, and I thought of the prospect that Carla was having a medical emergency. She could be in danger. I tried the door, but it was locked. This was my one chance to be a hero, I thought. I stepped back from the building and took a few short, deep breaths, then charged into the door with my shoulder. White-hot pain burned in my arm as the loud bang sounded. I stepped back and charged again, then again, trying the best I could to ignore the increasing ache. On the fifth attempt, the lock gave out and the door burst open. The smell hit me like a tidal wave. I coughed and choked, covering my mouth and nose with my hands as I looked at the quivering, slumped form in the corner. It was a long-haired woman, but they were pulsating, shifting in some strange manner that the darkness concealed the nature of. I reached my splayed hand over the wall, locating a light switch, and flicked it on. I let out an involuntary yell. In the corner was an emaciated woman covered with thousands of feeding flies. Her skin was sagging, loosely draped over the armature of a skeleton, as if all the meat had been removed from her body. I recognized the hair, which had fallen off in patches where the skin had begun to rot. I recognized the crystal earrings dangling from her ears as well. It was Carla, but she had been dead and rotting for weeks, maybe even months. I jumped at a buzz emanating from my own pocket. It was a text notification on my phone. Carla, I'm like five minutes away. Look forward to seeing you. A little heart emoji was at the end. I gagged from the terrible stench and the horror of the hollowed-out body, listening to the din of a thousand buzzing flies. An incoming text buzzed again, and I read the new message. From Carla. Hey, I'm here. Let me in? I then realized the mix-up. She intended to go to my place. Not... Her, though. Not Carla. Something else. My heart beat rapidly in my chest. This woman, whose photos I'd seen and shared messages, was clearly long dead and rotting away in this dark room. Who was texting me? And who was at my apartment? My skin iced over as I thought about my roommate, Pete. Pete. 
It was 6.30, and he was likely home from work. I called him, listening for a few rings before his voicemail picked up. I sent a text, urging him to get out of the apartment. That withered corpse in the corner wasn't skin and bones from decay. Something had sucked out every ounce of muscle. I was about to call again when another message appeared, quickly followed by another. Where are you? Where are you, Matthew? I ignored it, dialing the authorities instead. I sat in my car, conveying my worries about Pete, nearly pleading with him to check out our apartment. I didn't dare risk going home before then. All I could do was wait. The police called me back a couple hours later, and I listened with horror to their grim discovery. They had found my roommate Pete dead by the front door. His lifeless body was emaciated beyond logical explanation, as if he'd slowly starved to death over the period of years. His shriveled skin draped over his bony frame. The cause of death was unknown, but I was cleared from any suspicion due to lack of physical evidence. There was no sign of forced entry, only a set of strange scratch marks on the floor and on Pete's draping skin. Carla's body was discovered after I relayed the information to the police. Though the bizarre nature of her wasted away body made the time of death hard to determine, I was informed she had to have been deceased for at least a month. I never received any more texts from Carla's phone. I think whatever I'd been communicating with was far too intelligent to get traced and tracked that way. I stopped playing that online video game altogether and tried to get over my heartbreak. How many of those messages were from the real Carla? How many were just bait laid out by whatever that thing that had taken her away from me was? I moved on with my life and moved apartments as well for my own safety. I focused on work and even joined a gym to try and improve my body as well as my self-confidence. Though the passing weeks turned into months, part of me missed that true connection I'd made with another human. It was part curiosity and part nostalgia but I eventually logged into that online game one last time. I entered the virtual world, and only a few minutes after logging in, that familiar, gorgeous avatar ran towards my own. It was Carla's character, clear as day. My heart pounded until it ached. I tried to fabricate a scenario where Carla was truly alive and well, that there had been some strange mix-up, but then the message window popped up. My stomach churned as I read the messages that kept popping up on my screen, over and over again. Where are you, Matthew? Where are you, Matthew? Where are you, Matthew?
For all its apocalyptic downsides, the present day can be remarkable at times. If you told me just over 300 years ago that in 2021 you'd be able to buy junk food from a tiny handheld computer and receive it in less than half an hour, I'd have accused you of dallying with a demon. But in this tale, shared with us by author John Crane, we're reminded just how easy it is to be alerted to an incoming order. Over and over and over. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers and Sarah Thomas. So it might be less convenient, but maybe consider going out to eat or cooking what you have at home. Otherwise, you might receive a delivery notification. Delivery notifications are convenient, but they're disturbing when you receive them by mistake. Carl is on the way. That was the message I received at 12.33 a.m. yesterday. I was playing PlayStation while my girlfriend cooked bacon in the kitchen. Yes, we were eating bacon in the middle of the night. Amy was singing a song about it, set to the tune of Def Leppard's Pour Some Sugar On Me. The lyrics... Late night bacon party, come on fire it up, late night bacon party, you gotta flip it up, bacon's hot, sticky sweet, oh my pig, my piggy meat, yeah. She was always writing mundane parody songs that ended at one verse or one chorus, sometimes after one line. A common one was set to the tune of a single lyric in Nelly Furtado's I'm Like a Bird, I don't know where my phone is. Stupid, I know, but it always cracked me up. My stomach was already rumbling when my phone dinged. We have a really small house out in a St. Louis suburb, and we have no oven fan, so the smell of bacon was everywhere. My mouth was watering. I looked back down at the message. Carl is on the way. I was confused for a moment, but I came to the logical conclusion. Amy, you ordered pizza too? Are you trying to make me fat so I can't cheat on you? She poked her head into the living room. Like you could ever get another woman? But no, no pizza, just bacon. Why do you ask? I just got a text from some pizza place or something. Carl is on the way. Well, Carl is going to have to bring a pizza if he's hungry. Because we only have, like, five pieces of bacon, and I'm eating at least four. She turned back into the kitchen. I was confused, but part of that was due to the copious amounts of cannabis I'd smoked while waiting for my game to download. I knew that the message was a simple mistake. I knew that things like this happened all the time, probably. But something was off. I order a lot of delivery food. Hey, I smoke a lot of pot, and most corporations send texts from a five-digit number. This was eight digits long. 8543268 and then a final digit that I didn't recognize. It was a nine, but with a vertical line through it, the sort of digit you'd see in one of those online creepy text generators. You could chalk that up to an issue with the restaurant's delivery system, I guess, but that wasn't doing anything for my anxiety. All right, bacon's done. You want toast, eggs? I'm already cooking, let me know. I turned to respond. Yeah, I'll... Carl is in your neighborhood and will arrive shortly. Now I was annoyed. Oh, for Christ's sake. I'm going to be getting these notifications until Carl drops off that damn pizza. 
Now I want pizza. <laughs> well, no pizza, only bacon. And you'll only get like two more messages at most. Settle down, dude. You're not really appreciating the late night bacon party experience. Yeah. Well, you're right, but you're also annoying, so. Carl is at your door. Man, Carl's fast. What delivery place texts you when the guy's there? Wouldn't he just knock? Probably a COVID thing. The knocking started as soon as the words were out of her mouth. Three hard, almost mechanical knocks. Hey, you got your wish. There's pizza too. Just don't let it ruin your bacon appetite. <gasps> oh, maybe the pizza will have bacon on it. Again, I was quite stoned, and I am the type of person who gets paranoid easily, but something in me wanted to lock the door, barricade myself in the bedroom, and keep the lights on until morning. Granted, part of me always feels that way, but something was not right. I shook off that feeling. I wish I hadn't. I got up, dusting crumbs off my shirt, and prepared to interact with another human being, something I definitely didn't want to do that night. I looked through the window expecting to see a middle-aged, underpaid man in a domino shirt. There's no one here. Yes, there is, pothead. The fucker just knocked. Amy walked over from the kitchen, wiping her hands on an old apron she used to wear when she cooked. It didn't matter whether she was cooking something that actually required an apron. Bacon isn't rocket science. She always wore it and never washed it. That always drove me crazy. She tried to peer through the window at the top of the door where I was looking out at our empty porch, but she was too short. Oh, come on. He's probably standing right up against the door. The poor bastard is working at midnight. Don't make him stand around. Her hand reached towards the doorknob. No, don't. But the door was already open. Nobody was there. Huh. I guess you're not a lying idiot. You're still a regular idiot, though. <laughs> Do you think you realize that? Another ding from my phone. I didn't look right away. Instead, I slammed the door and turned to my girlfriend. You shouldn't have done that. She crossed her arms. Why? Is there a gang of satanic domino rapists I don't know about? Or are you just worried about talking to a stranger? Well, the second one, but this isn't right. The number in the phone, it's just not normal. And the messages are too frequent. And why would a delivery driver with the wrong phone number go to the right address? Amy rolled her eyes. Okay. No more medical grade pot for you. You're going back to ditchweed with me. Look at the numbers. I thrust my phone towards her, feeling like some sort of conspiracy theorist. She rolled her eyes again as she unlocked my phone, and then her face dropped. Oh, okay. Now that is freaky. The number's all wrong. Like, where do you enter a nine with a line through it on a normal phone? I've never seen that character before. It's like, bad mojo number. I hate that number. I don't give a shit about that. Look. She handed back the phone. Carl is in your house and will arrive shortly. My stomach dropped, but Amy was starting to laugh. <laughs> oh, man. Someone is getting fired for this shit. I've worked in databases before. It's a database error or a text entry error or... You didn't work with databases. I worked at that florist shop and they had... spreadsheets... Which are a type of database? Anyway, dude, Carl is not in the house right now. This is just what happens when big, faceless corporations try to interact with real humans. They fuck up, 
scare us, and disappoint us by not bringing us surprise pizzas. So, chill. Eat bacon, drink a beer, play your game. You are freaking out way too hard right now. Carl is in the kitchen and will arrive shortly. Amy grabbed the phone out of my hand, the veneer of her calmness disappearing instantaneously. Her eyes darted over the text, then to the kitchen, then back to the phone. She definitely wasn't laughing now. We slowly walked to the kitchen together. I didn't feel great about that. I really wanted to do the whole hide-in-the-bedroom thing, but I knew that'd be a hard sell, and I definitely didn't want to leave Amy alone. As we turned into the room, I felt a wave of relief, and then panic. There was nothing in the kitchen. I don't mean nobody was in the kitchen, I mean nothing was in the kitchen. The bacon, bread, and eggs that Amy had laid out for the late-night bacon party had vanished. No sign of them whatsoever. No crumbs. Nothing. Amy looked at me with wide eyes. I swear, if this is one of your fucking friends trying to... I slowly looked around the room. It's not. I have no idea what the hell is happening right now. This time, I didn't look at my phone. I had a pretty good idea of what the text said. Carl is in your refrigerator. If not Carl, something was in there. We heard a screeching sound, slightly muddled and contained by the fridge, then frenetic clawing, like a raccoon going through trash, but much, much faster. It was angry, violent. Then, almost as suddenly as it started, it stopped. Before I could grab her, Amy ran to the fridge and threw open the door. Nothing there. No food, no food wrappers, not even the three-year-old box of baking soda we kept in the side door. We're getting the fuck out of here. She didn't wait for me to respond. She didn't have to. I grabbed my keys from the kitchen table as we ran to the front door. As we made our way to my car, I noted how cold it was. I can't say for sure whether or not it was unseasonably cold. I rarely go outdoors at midnight in November, but it felt like I was breathing broken glass. And maybe I was focusing too much on my breath because... I didn't notice what had happened to my keys until I tried to put them in the ignition. The key was bent at a right angle. Not snapped off, which would have made more sense. It was playing with us. I held up the key to Amy. What's plan B? Jesus. Fuck. Okay, let me think. But there wasn't time for that. Carl has arrived. I read it. My hands were shaking and I imagined my face was pale. Amy knew immediately that the message meant bad news. Then, and this happened so, so quickly, she doubled over, letting out an anguished shriek. She felt it before I saw it. Her stomach, something in her stomach, was moving. Her face was pure fear, but she contorted the edges of her lips to attempt a calm smile. That was Amy. She was always a strong one. Honey, I love... And then she was screaming. The tearing sounds were animal yet mechanical, vicious and sadistic. Blood covered my face, the dashboard, the roof, organs and viscera. And panic set in, ramped up, kept ramping up until I screamed with a cracked, inhuman voice. I kept screaming as her screams stopped, as she slumped over in the seat, as it crawled out of her jet black skin glistening and wet black teeth, sharp hands. It moved quickly, jutting out a long purple tongue to lick the blood off its razor fingers. I didn't see any eyes, but it turned its head towards me, 
and I knew it saw me. It sneered a wide smile, the macabre mockery of Amy's last moments. Panic became all-encompassing until, mercifully, everything stopped. I woke in the morning. Well, not woke. I was suddenly there, in my car. My eyes wide open and my muscles tense. The seat next to me was ripped to shreds, but there wasn't a drop of blood anywhere. Not even on me. Later, I wondered whether the thing had crawled on me during the night, sucking each drop out of my clothes and licking my skin. I walked inside in a daze, hoping to see Amy standing there with bed hair and sleep in her eyes, ready to lecture me about the dangers of medical cannabis. She wasn't there, of course. But I looked everywhere, under the bed and in every closet, hoping dumbly for anything concrete that would stop the snarling sense of dread that was slowly spreading through my body like a warm cancer. And that was yesterday. Amy is not here. I know where she is, or at least where she was. And I am out of food. I need to eat, and then call the police, and then call her family. Then probably go to prison. I don't care much about any of that. Whatever happens now is unimportant. I may have gone insane and killed my girlfriend, or maybe everything happened exactly as I remembered it, but either way, I simply cannot live here anymore. In fact, I probably can't live anywhere. I know it'll come back. I hope that it comes back for me. It's already taken everything I have, but I suspect it'll wait until it sees an opportunity to twist the knife further. It likes to play with its food. I've kept my phone off until today. I knew I couldn't put off the things I had to do forever. I powered it on to call the police and read the single, unread text message. How did Carl do? Give feedback and get free deliveries for friends and family. When you're a kid, you likely don't have many arch-enemies yet, but there's a very good chance you have one, a mandatory bedtime. Especially if it was earlier than your peers. That feeling of lying awake in the summer, still daylight outside, other younger kids hooting and guffawing with exuberant glee, oh, it's enough to make your blood boil. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jake Brannan, we meet a guy whose parents forced him to hit the hay at 9 p.m. Clearly unreasonably strict, right? Performing this tale are Matthew Bradford, Mary Murphy, and Jesse Cornett. So remember, sometimes the rules growing up might seem unfair, but they're often in your best interests. Something you'll find out if you're still awake when Mother comes to check on me at night. Bedtime feels like a word meant for a child. 
I mean, nothing cements a kid more in the reality of their youth and powerlessness is when they hear the words, it's time for bed, or it's past your bedtime, come from their parents' mouths. I was accustomed to the former more than the latter statement. I mean, I never stayed up past my bedtime. Well, that's a lie. I did stay up past it once, but after that I made sure never to do so again. As embarrassing as it is to say now, I must admit that I had a bedtime up until I was 17, which was the age I left home for the military. As long as I lived under my mom and dad's roof, it was understood that I was to be in bed by 9 and asleep by no later than 10 o'clock. The only exceptions came when I would spend the night at a friend's house, which is something I tried to do as much as possible in my middle school and high school years. From my infancy to the age of 10, I was to be in bed and asleep by 9. But as I began to enter my teen years, I was granted a little leniency. As I said, I had to be physically in bed by 9, but I had an hour to do what I wanted while there, just as long as I was asleep, or at least close to being asleep, by 10 o'clock. Usually in that hour, I would just, you know, read. TV wasn't an option because we didn't have cable, and the only DVD player in the house was in the living room. For the longest time, I believed that my strict sleep schedule was just a result of my parents simply wanting me to get a good night's sleep. You know, where I'd wake up well-rested and refreshed in the morning, ready for the day ahead. But into my teen years, when a little rebellion was to be expected from a child, I became frustrated with my parents and their in-bed-and-asleep-by-ten rule. I should be allowed to decide when I go to bed at night. I'm not a little kid anymore. And that was just one of the many arguments I had with my parents over their rules. And no matter what I said, the response was always the same, whether it came from my mom or dad. You live under our roof. We make the rules. You follow them. And that usually ended any discussion. One time, though, I think when I was 12, my mother added one last thing to the conversation. And it was this last thing that stuck with me. She said, Hmm. Boy, there are two certainties in this household. Certainty one is that you will be in bed and asleep by ten. And certainty two is that I will check on you every night to make sure you're sleeping. That moment stuck with me for a number of reasons. It just seemed like an odd thing to point out for one. I imagine that all parents check on their children at night, just to make sure everything is alright with them. And I suppose it made sense for my parents to do the same, especially when I was younger. I forgot to mention, but throughout my early childhood, well, according to my father, I was prone to extreme night terrors. Apparently, they were so bad that my body would shake uncontrollably, and I would unleash the most blood-curdling scream imaginable, and all the while I was asleep through it all. So yeah, it made sense that my mother would check on me every once in a while. But every night, was it that necessary? But the main reason my mother's statement stood out was the look on my dad's face when she said it. And he looked at her, his eyes wide in concern. It was as if my mom had said something dangerous or something to be fearful of. Dad looked at me and saw that I had seen his reaction and he moved quickly to change the conversation. There were, of course, other arguments after that, all with the same rhetoric. But never again did my mom mention how she'd always check on me every night to make sure I was sleeping. 
When I turned 14, school was just getting out and my parents and I had another discussion about me wanting to stay up late. I got the same under our house, our rules response from them. Then I remembered what my mom had said that one time about her checking on me every night. And again, I found myself wondering why that was. And then I remembered my dad's look of fear and concern when that statement came out of her mouth. It was then that I decided I had to know what the deal was. That night, I'd stay up past 10 o'clock. My plan was simply just to feign sleeping. The night would start off just like all the others before it. I'd be in bed by 9, read a little, and then lights off around 9.30. After that is when I'd usually be falling asleep, and though I wouldn't know how, like clockwork, I was always asleep by 10 o'clock. This night was going to be different, and when the lights went off at 9.30, it became a waiting game. I laid there in the dark with my eyes open. I knew if I closed them for too long, I'd surely fall asleep, and I was determined to not let that happen. Not until I knew why my mom felt the need to check on me every night. I had to know what the reason was, if there was one at all. I mean, for all I knew, it could have just been something my mom did out of habit. Looking back, I don't know what I expected, and it seems pretty dumb now. But I certainly wasn't expecting what actually happened. For half an hour, I laid there staring at the red numbers on my alarm clock. It felt like an eternity had passed when 10 o'clock finally arrived. After that, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was in uncharted territory. Before that, I couldn't ever remember seeing the clock go past 10 p.m. I didn't know how long it would take for my mom to come in, and again, I didn't know what to expect with that either. I just kept laying there and staring at the clock. I guess I started to doze a little bit, and as much as I tried to keep from falling asleep, it was a challenge. I remembered the clock reading 1031, and then I lost time for a few minutes because when I saw the numbers next, they read 1042. I began to wonder if anything had happened in those 11 minutes. But then I heard a noise from out in the living room. A door had opened and closed. I laid still and recognized it as the sound the door to my parents' room made. At that moment, everything got awfully quiet. Any noise that was produced would surely be amplified just by how silent it was. Then I heard what sounded like feet dragging against the floor all the way down the hall. The sound stopped in front of my door and I, I knew that someone was standing outside it. This had to be my mother, doing what she said she always did. Why was she dragging her feet though? And why was she just standing outside the door? I laid there, not moving and aside from breathing, I wasn't making any noise. I kept readying myself to close my eyes and carry out my ruse once the door opened. But the door didn't open, and I wondered if my mom just went back to her and dad's room. Then I heard the faintest sound of someone murmuring, almost whispering, but not as loud and not at all intelligible. This went on for three minutes before I heard the quiet creak of my door slightly opening. I quickly shut my eyes and pretended to sleep, 
relying fully on my hearing to tell me what was happening. The door didn't open any further, but the murmuring continued, and it was somewhat louder now. I knew from the voice that it was my mother, but any comfort I may have gotten from that quickly left. The door suddenly opened all the way, and I again heard the sound of feet dragging across the ground as my mother came into my room. The dragging stopped, and I felt that she was standing at the foot of my bed. The murmuring from before ceased, and now she was whispering, but it was not her voice that was whispering. This was a deeper, breathy voice, and an all-round one that sounded menacing. I became frozen. With all my might, I kept my eyes shut and tried not to make a sound. My breathing was already becoming quicker, and then, when the whispering became understandable to my ears, I didn't know how I was able to control myself. Look at the boy sleeping in bed. Does the boy hear us? Does the boy see us? No. But one day he will. He'll see us and he'll fear what he sees. He'll see us grin and laugh. And then the boy will die. The boy will die just like the man. I laid there in shock, and then I suddenly realized I was shaking. I tried to stop myself, and that's when I heard feet dragging the floor again, much quicker than before. The voice spoke once more. This time it sounded right on top of me. My mother, and whatever the thing was behind the voice, they were leaning over me. Oh, we think the boy hears. And if the boy hears, then the boy knows. Do you hear us, boy? You know we're here. Every night we're here. One day, boy, we will tear the skin from your body. Your blood will run as you watch us devour you. Become you. We will tear the skin and wear it and become you. And then we will check on the young ones again. We will be there to check on the next boy and the next girl. Do you hear us, boy? Perhaps you do. Perhaps you don't. She never heard us. And yet she is with us. You'll be with us too. We see you. We always have. We always will. With all my strength, I held my eyes shut and demanded my body to stay still. Besides the sound of this thing's voice, the only other thing I heard was my heart beating as fast as it ever had gone. 
I heard feet dragging the floor again. Now it was going back out of my room, and I heard the door quickly shut behind it. I remained still, as still as I could muster. Then I heard the sound of my parents' bedroom door open and close. I allowed my breathing to become a little louder and less controlled. I was breathing hard, and I felt warm streaks run down my face. I was crying. I couldn't help it. What just happened? I asked myself. And what was that thing? The thing using my mother as a way to speak? These thoughts ran through my mind, and truthfully, I I can't remember falling asleep that night though I suppose I did. Alright, son, time to get up. When my dad woke me up at 7.30, the door opened and my body jumped. I sat up in bed and, according to him, I was as white as a ghost and stared at him with wide, bloodshot eyes. I gave him the same look I'd seen on his face years before. I stared at him, and he looked back at me and he knew. I just know he did. We held each other's gaze for maybe a minute or so when he and I both heard the same someone calling from the kitchen. It was Mom, asking my dad if he'd gotten me up yet. He was quiet for a few seconds, and then shouted back that he had, and that we'd be in for breakfast in a minute. Son? Yeah, Dad? You can't say anything. I can't explain it to you, so please don't ask. Just don't say anything. And I didn't. Somehow I went out and faced my mother and held myself together. There wasn't much conversation at the breakfast table that morning, or the mornings after that. I was 14 then and I lived under my parents' roof for two and a half more years. In that time, I was allowed to go out with friends more, and more and more I'd spend nights at their houses. Still though, most nights I was home, and I always made sure I was asleep by ten. I knew my mother would still be there every night to check on me. Even while asleep, in my dreams she was there. I was seventeen when I graduated school, two months shy of my 18th birthday. I was ready to leave. I wanted out, and my dad knew it. I mean, I was out of that house, out from under their roof a week after graduation. My dad understood my wanting to leave, and my mother was sad to see me go. I suppose I was sad leaving her too, but that night it changed things. I loved my mother. I have no doubt about that, but Things weren't the same and never could be again. I knew what she became at night. I didn't understand it, and I sure as hell don't want to, but I knew it nonetheless. What nags me is whether or not she knew, and if that thing speaking from her was telling the truth. I'm older now, in my early 40s, and I have kids of my own, a son and daughter, My wife and I are happily married and have been for 11 years now. I hadn't talked to my parents in quite a while when I received a call from the police informing me of an incident that involved them. It chills me to the bone now just thinking about it. The officer told me that a neighbor heard screaming emanating from my parents' house. A man's screaming. My father. 
and the neighbor paid it no mind because apparently my dad had been suffering from some severe nightmares as of recently, the kind that would cause him to scream wildly and fearfully in the dead of night. The next morning, however, the neighbor went out and discovered the front door to the house open. He went to it and knocked, announced his presence, and asked if anyone was home. He then went inside and saw red footprints on the carpet floor, leading to the front door. The footprints were coming from the master bedroom, and when he walked in there, he saw the flayed corpse of my father laying on the bed. The sheets were almost entirely blood-soaked. He screamed and ran out and called the police. They arrived and carried out an investigation, but didn't find much in the way of evidence pointing to a killer, other than the bloody footprints which they determined belonged to my mother. They also reported that my mother was nowhere to be found, and I hung up the phone after hearing that. I got that call a week ago, and I don't think I've gotten a full night's sleep since, maybe only an hour or two per night. Well, except for last night. Last night I slept straight through. I don't know how, but I did. I woke up this morning feeling well rested. My wife woke up at the same time. She said good morning and then said that I had been talking in my sleep last night. When I asked what I had been saying, she said that she didn't know, but that it sounded like I was having a bad dream. Swiping a candy from the corner store, pinching a loaf of bread from a market, stealing the crown jewels. These are all examples of harmless childhood thievery that I, and I'm sure many others, have engaged in. It's all part of growing up. Not condoning it, though. Shoplifting in particular can lead to some serious repercussions. Just take the boy in this tale, shared with us by author Charlie Davenport. It's clear that the security guard isn't going to go easy on him. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Mike Delgadio, and Graham Rowett. So when you're down at Tavistock Galleria, maybe resist the urge to just take what you want. You may find out that the transaction comes at a high price. His uniform wasn't any different from any of the other security guards I'd seen working there. A white shirt over navy blue work pants, one of those ridiculous black campaign hats that only state troopers and Smokey the Bear were supposed to wear, and two name tags sewn on his breast pockets. One had the words Tavistock Galleria printed on it. The other simply read Amazad. My friend's dad had come to pick him up right away. The flaring of his nostrils as he listened to the clerk's story synced up with the thundering of my own heartbeat, 
and I was suddenly no longer certain if I'd made the correct choice by calling mom. Then they were gone, and I was alone in the break room while the business carried on outside. An hour passed, then two, then more. I I don't know how long I was there. The room was warm, like vinyl car seats baking in the August heat. My eyes were heavy, and I wondered if I'd just been abandoned, done the one thing that was unforgivable. Then Officer Amazad was in the chair across from me. I hadn't seen him come in or sit down, but he was already speaking, and he wore a smile the whole time. What were you and your friend up to today? His hands were folded neatly in front of him, a cup of coffee between us that did not steam. I lived about 20 minutes away from the Galleria by car, but those trips were always in the company of adults, and were purpose-driven by things like Labor Day sales and back-to-school shopping. By bike, it was about, well, that was my mode of independent transportation, when the day was mine to do with what I pleased until the streetlights came on. So I have no idea how long it took as we'd ramble, distracted by this and that, rarely in a straight line. It was that point in my childhood where summers seemed to last forever, and it was only after a full day of rioting that your legs felt tired. Me and this kid Anthony would go to the mall on those lazy dog days and just luxuriate in the air conditioning that would blast you clean as you stepped through the automatic door and into the food court. Did you plan to come to Tavistock specifically to steal from the vault? There was still a comic book shop back then, and while it was nowhere near as impressive as the name The Vault might suggest, it did have rack after rack of comics in there. Each month there were more than any kid could read in a lifetime of vacation days, but I was willing to try. Anthony, he was into cards of some kind, which they had there too. I honestly can't remember if it was baseball cards or one of those trading games, you know, like magic. I feel like we might have been just a little too old for that, missed it by a couple of years. What I do remember is, it was his idea. What did you plan to take? Officer Amazad lifted the cup to his lips, and I could see through the thin styrofoam that there was nothing inside it. I'd had a book in my hand, one of the fancy ones they call a graphic novel, and I was thinking it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen, but I just didn't have the money for it. I felt a little tap on my shoulder. I turned and Anthony was staring at me with this weird intensity that made me step back for a second. I don't know why, but I was certain he was going to clock me. Instead, he pointed over to the front counter, the glass display case that held all the big-ticket items only full-grown adults would ever be able to buy, and then the cash register. There was nobody there. Despite what you're gonna hear next, believe me when I say I didn't have a criminal bone in my body, and so I didn't get what the big deal was. I turned back to Anthony to give a silent shrug, but instead found myself staring right into the gaping chasm of his open backpack held out in front of him. With a sudden wild jubilation that pushed all thought and potential regret away, I thrust the book deep into the sack as Anthony swept a couple of items off the table next to us. Have you ever stolen before? 
After the bag was full up to the seams with everything we could fit into it, we took off for the front door, giggling like the master criminals we were. I won't tell you that I didn't know it was wrong, because I did. I was giddy with how wrong it was. I had never egged a car or TP'd someone's elm tree because I was that kind of painfully well-behaved child. I was the good kind of kid. The kind that the kids that did that sort of thing would never even think to include in such a plan. But there I was, committing theft. What was in the bag? I hadn't wanted anything but that one book. Everything else was Anthony's. His hands had been moving like a blur, shoving everything he could into his Jansport pack. I should have told the guard that, snitched on my friend, shifted the blame to make it all seem like it was his idea, but I didn't. I felt the tip of my tongue searching the roof of my mouth like the right words were going to be there. And then it sort of lolled backwards into my throat as if exhausted by the effort. I was thinking about a story my grandfather had told me about a friend of his in the Korean War. They found him on his cot one morning, dead, having swallowed his own tongue in the night. I sat up straighter and tried to focus on keeping the pink slug in my mouth right where it was. What was the book about? Must have been something special. The cover was mostly blue. The cover was mostly blue and... Why did you stop? The illicit fun of the whole thing had quickly bled away as the clerk appeared in front of the door. Just a pudgy teenager with bad skin, but in that moment, he wielded the full authority of adulthood over us. He told us to follow him to the back of the store where the break room was and had us sit at the long Formica table. Probably once a month since then, I've had the thought, we could have just kept running pop into my head out of nowhere, but it didn't that day. The kid, because that's all he was, just a kid himself, gave us the option of calling the police or our parents. And with tremulous voices, we both gave up our home numbers, uncertain even as we did, which would be the worst fate. Amazad laughed. <laughs> the coffee cup was gone. Not empty. Gone. What was his dad's name again? I knew that, of course. I'd slept over at their house. Watched Anthony's parents go through the routine of a married life with him as the center of their world. Soccer practice, an extra cup of coffee for mom as a treat, pumpernickel toast with peanut butter for dad, and marshmallow fluff on white bread for their boy. Will your mom be picking you up? Mom would be working her shift. She was a waitress at the cafe, a substitute teacher at my school and sold Norman Rockwell-style paintings to the summer folks when they came to town. Not enough to scrape together for a mortgage or even rent in our swanky little town. We lived with my grandparents, and more than likely, they'd be the ones to come pick me up. How old are your grandparents? Old. Old enough that my grandma still talked about the first time she'd seen a working TV like it was a marvel. You'd be forgiven for expecting they'd be old school. I'll spare the rod and spoil the child. But I was sure Grandpa would just be quiet on the ride back. His lips would be drawn into a tight grimace of displeasure, both his and Grandma's eyes fixed on the road in front of them with greater focus than normal. 
Having agreed upon it, that unspoken communication that only those had been married for 40 years can manage. At some point, I'd ask, because it was the only way to break the silence, if they were mad at me. The silence would persist a moment more, and then my grandfather would lock eyes with me in the rear view and say that he was too disappointed to be angry. What were you going to do with the book? A rush of idiot embarrassment surged to my cheeks. For the first time since he'd appeared in that chair, I broke eye contact with Amazad and stared down at the table. Read it. Just read it. Look up, please. He waited until I did. Are you scared right now? Yes. Not of the authority of an adult in uniform or having been caught in the act or even of the inevitable tongue lashing from mom that was to come. I was scared of that man on a basic biological level. What is Anthony doing right now, you think? He'd have been crying by that point, begging his dad to stop. The man had a dealership or something out on the interstate. His mom was on the town council, or was it the state arts council? They were pillars of the community, and they'd both be livid. Didn't they buy him everything he could want? Even as a kid, I'd seen how mother and son would flinch when the old man moved a little faster than normal. How Anthony would skip the showers after gym class or wince as he took his seat in Mrs. Torkelson's math class. Yes, Anthony would be crying by then. Do you love him? I looked back at the officer with the big, stupid eyes of a doe caught in a semi's headlights. Do you love Anthony? I felt an odd pang of panic at that question. I had never considered the idea before. I loved my mother. I loved my grandparents. My understanding of the concept went no further than that. Do you love Anthony? There was that sharp shock of dread again. Once we'd hidden under his blanket with flashlights under our chins. We took turns telling each other the scariest stories we'd ever heard, before musing on what it would take for Katie Newmar, Jesse Newmar's older sister, to go out with either of us. We stared each other in the eyes and with a gentleman's handshake, wished each other the best of luck. We were both pretty sure we loved her. Do you love Anthony? He wants me to say yes, I thought, and I felt my mind dance away from it. He was my friend, my only friend, really. He cheated off me in English class. I let him cheat off me in English class. He'd punched Jamie G in the back of the head hard enough to make him cry when he'd made fun of my Batman shirt. Do you love Anthony? I wanted to kill his dad for what he did to him. Good. It was all Amazad said as his hand slapped down on my wrist, just as the cash register drawer on the other side of the thin door loudly slid open with a rattle of change. I screamed. Of course I did. Parents, health class, and McGruff the crime dog had all drilled stranger danger into our heads. All it took was one person with bad intentions to turn you into a picture on the side of a milk carton. I'd stopped by the time Grandpa arrived, blustering about the parking lot around the mall, 
and found me alone in the back room. He took one look at me, and seeing the pale, stricken look on my face and the racking shiver that ran throughout my whole body, every bit of disappointment and disapproval went right out of him. He wrapped his arm around me and stormed up to the clerk, demanding to know what had happened to his grandson. The boy, his lack of authority made it all the more obvious by the presence of an actual adult, shrank back and proclaimed that I'd just been sitting back there the whole time, by myself. Grandpa took me back to the car, where Grandma waited, and they took me home. I never went back to the mall again. Years later, with college almost done, I went to visit Grandpa in the nursing home. Grandma had long since passed, and his declining health had been too much of a challenge for Mom to handle on her own. The wheels hadn't come off yet, but there was a drift to his thoughts that had settled in and was growing deeper by the day. We played hearts for the biggest part of the time. He kept forgetting the rules, the score, and talked about Grandma in the present tense before the fact that she was gone would materialize back in the front of his brain and that sad smile would play across his face. I was shuffling the deck for another hand when I looked up and saw him staring at me. This profound, questioning look drawn across his face. Oh God, he's gone, I remember thinking. Then he snapped back to the moment and asked, You still got that book? He told me he remembered driving me home that day I had shoplifted. Grandma peppering him with a dozen questions that he had no answers for, and I had just seemed unwilling to provide any response whatsoever. At a stoplight, he'd turned back to try one more time to get some detail from me. And damned if you didn't have a funny book open on your lap. I say, where'd you get that? Did you steal it? You just look up at me real slow-like and say, it was paid for. I shuffled the cards and said honestly that I had no memory of that. We played another hand. Tavistock closed down a dozen or so years ago. Around the time Amazon made it possible for the world to be delivered right to your door. But everything comes back around at some point. From what I understand, after years of hosting a hodgepodge of fly-by-night retailers... Some investors had decided to turn it into a shopping, dining, entertainment, and residential complex. Whatever that might mean. As I shuffled the deck, Grandpa caught my eye. What was the name of that kid you used to go there with? His eyebrows were dancing as though he were trying to knock the information loose from between his ears. I dealt the cards and said honestly that I didn't remember. You see... I call him Anthony here, but only because I needed a name for the story. For all I know, he was Tristan or Thomas, Tim, or virtually any other name. There's a kid-shaped space in my memory of best friend in that stretch of my life. When I think of him most times, I remember this vague, burly kid as tall as he was wide, with a scruffy mop of sandy or dirty blonde hair. Other times, he was about my height with black hair and some kind of freckling or birthmark around his eyes. 
Though hearing the story from my grandpa, I, I suspect that might have been a bruise or two. I remember there was a time where I had a friend, and the time that came after, when I didn't anymore. On the way home after my visit with Grandpa, I drove past the mall and saw all the construction going up around it. They were busily adding on to what was left over from years of functioning neglect. I saw the signs hanging from the fencing that separated the Galleria from the rest of the world, promising that it would be reopening soon. And maybe it was just frost heaves on the road or I hit a random pothole. But the coin holder in my mom's center console suddenly shook and gave out a chiming jangle. A boy for a book. Or maybe just a friendship. Perhaps Anthony was still out there, somewhere. So you take this for what it's worth. Don't shoplift from the Tavistock Galleria. Because there's something there that will take payment. And will do it with a smile. In our final tale, we've been granted clearance to sit in on an interview. It very soon becomes clear that it's the kind of interview where the clearance must be of the highest and most esoteric level. And in this tale, shared with us by author J.G. Martin, we get a behind-the-scenes look at a new and terrifying urban legend. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Jeff Clement, and Kristen DiMercurio. So let's journey from a sterile interview room to a cabin in the woods and experience the sharp stab of fear that comes each time you discover more and more about Jagged Janice. government employee. My name isn't important. All you need to worry about is what I have to say. I work at a compound known as the facility. Within it, we perform research on things the public would find unappetizing. Officially, we're listed under Experimental Weapons Development. But lately, our umbrella has spread much wider. Suffice it to say that there are things out there that go bump in the night. Things both legendary and mundane that exert their influence upon us and defy explanation. My job is to interview individuals who believe they've encountered such entities and determine if their accounts are fact or fiction. What my job is not to do, however, is share those interviews. In this case, though, I don't think I have a choice. The room is cramped, dimly lit, and smells vaguely of stale piss and black mold. A light hangs above the table between us, 
rocking back and forth and doing a poor job illuminating much of anything. Still, I can see the man's gaunt face in the fields on my clipboard. It's enough. It will do. I asked the man to tell me his story, and it begins. He's twenty-something with a long nose and five o'clock shadow. When he reaches for his cigarette, his hand shakes like a 1950s pickup truck. It happened at the cabin. Not my cabin. It belonged to Emily, but she invited us up. The three of us. My pen scratches across my clipboard. Four individuals. For leisure, I'll assume? He cocks an eyebrow at me. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Why else do people go to cabins? We just wanted to get drunk, stoned, forget about our problems for the weekend. You know, like normal people do. Of course. I mark down his response. His eyes dart toward the cameras in the corner of the room, and his tongue slips across his lips. They're chapped, cracked and bleeding. He looks worse than a mess. He looks like a disaster. The cameras, what's the deal with them? You said you weren't a cop. I'm not. The cameras are for my own records. Events... Encounters with the paranormal, they're tricky things. Sometimes we catch items and recordings we'd otherwise miss in person. He stares at me a while. His lip curls in, his teeth gnawing at it. It's a look I've seen before, the sort of look where he's wondering if maybe he's being played. He's wondering if this is a sting operation, and he's taking the bait, and I'm going to have him thrown into a psych ward. Or worse. I place my clipboard on the desk between us. It's better if you tell me everything. I'm not here to have you put away. Only to get some answers. A moment of dead air hangs between us, and it's the sort of moment I recognize. He's weighing the situation. Sizing me up. He's wondering if he's comfortable talking about something this batshit insane to a total stranger. But then he takes a deep breath. Followed by a deep drag. And he ashes his cigarette. He taps a finger on the desk, gathers his thoughts. It happened late at night. The four of us had been drinking in the cabin, doing mushrooms. But we all slept outside in tents since the place was full of spiders. Hardly never got used. I check a box labeled intoxicated. Why is that? He shrugs. Bad memories, I think. I tilt my head to the side, inviting him to continue. The cabin belonged to Emily's mom. 
She passed away when M was a little girl. The place has been a mausoleum ever since. M thinks it has bad mojo. What do you think? He tastes the question. What do I think? I think that... He trails off, his eyes losing focus, gazing at the splintered wooden table between us. Suddenly he seems far away. There's an emptiness to his expression. A disconnect. I wonder if he's thinking of legends and nightmares. I wonder if he's thinking of Jagged Janus. Is everything all right? He blinks, then nods. My pen scratches across my clipboard. Subject appears traumatized. Avoidant. What's that? What are you writing? He leans forward, his thin frame eclipsing the table as he narrows his eyes on my form. I pull it away. It's private. How come? Your knowledge of my notes could influence your account. I'd prefer it if such biases were avoided. His face creases. Jaw clenches. Now, please continue. He looks angry as he sits back in his chair. Pissed. He's gnawing at his lips again, and his fingers tapping the table like a gatling gun. There's no doubt in my mind that this guy's been through a lot, but I need to make sure he's telling the truth. And in order to do that, he can't know anything. Nothing at all. Fine. We'll do it your way. Yes, we always do. Like I said, we were drinking in the cabin, swapping old war stories from high school, talking about stupid pranks we'd pull or places we'd tag or teachers we hated. We reflected. Pretty soon, though, we got drunk enough that stuff went deeper. We stopped talking about all the silly surface bullshit, and we started talking about the stuff that really meant something to us. The things that set our souls on fire. That's a poetic turn of phrase. Are you a writer? He shrugs. Uh, Let me rephrase. Would you describe yourself as having an active imagination? The man studies me, gears turning in his head. Again, he's wondering if I'm goading him into an admission of insanity. He's wondering if I'm calculating what amount of antipsychotics it would take to counterbalance his paranoia, and what size straitjacket would best fit his scarecrow frame. But I'm not doing any of that. The truth is I don't care if he's insane or perfectly lucid. I don't give a damn about him at all. All I care about is whether or not he's seen Jagged Janus, and that he isn't another liar. My imagination isn't anything special. Now, can I tell my fucking story, or are you going to keep interrupting? I smile. 
Sure, go ahead. He takes a breath, spares a half second to glare at me. The four of us are drinking in M's cabin, and she starts to get low, like depressed. She's usually a pretty upbeat person, so I ask her what's up. And she says she's just been feeling a bit haunted since coming back to the cabin. I lift an eyebrow. Her brother. The man sighs, shakes his head as though determining how best to phrase his next words. Her her brother died at the cabin. Drowned to death in an ocean a hundred yards from the front door. Emily watched it happen. She watched her brother drown? He nods. She was four years old. She didn't understand what was happening, not really. There wasn't anything she could do. I see. It's a sad story, but not really what I came here for. Worse still, nothing yet matches the jagged Janus legend. Anything else? The man looks up at me and disbelief swims in his eyes. Anything else? No, asshole. That's it. She watched her brother die, and it made her feel like shit. I'm not here for Emily's story. I'm here for yours. You'll excuse me if I forget to feign empathy for a woman I've never met. I check a box labeled confrontational and rest my pen on my clipboard. Now then, you said you were drinking, talking. What happened after that? His jaw is set, clenched. He looks like he wants to slug me in the face, and honestly, I wouldn't blame him. But instead, he takes a drag on his cigarette and leans back in his chair. We drink and talk until our eyes get droopy. And then we go to bed. It's like any night, I guess. Up until a point. There's an implication in his words, but I'll deal with it later. For now, I need more details. I need to understand the setting of the event as clearly as I can. I glance down at my copy of the police report. The police report mentions the incident occurred inside of the cabin. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Can you describe it for me? The layout? He scratches the back of his head, brows furrowed. There's a picture being painted in his mind, colored by memories. It's a T-shaped cabin, capital T. There's two bedrooms on either side of the T, and at the very top center is a bathroom. The bottom of the T is the living area and kitchen, and the front door. I made a quick sketch of it on my form. Simple enough. According to the report, the event occurred in the washroom. I'd like you to talk about that. His eyes narrow and his mouth twitches. 
He sucks in on his cigarette like it's the last drag he'll ever have. Slow. Long. He burns it down to the filter. Eyes bloodshot. And then he drops it into the ashtray. You got any more of these? Sure. I reach inside my jacket and pull out a pack, tossing it to him. The man catches it and flips it open. His hands are shaking. They're shaking so hard that he can hardly light the smoke after he slips it into his mouth. Let me... No, I've got it. The lighter strikes and a flame dances to life. He hovers it below his dart until an ember glows. Then the man leans back, takes a deep drag and blows out a storm cloud. You're the real deal. I'm sorry? The real deal. You actually believe me, don't you? Truthfully, I'm still making up my mind. Maybe. You said the four of you quit drinking to go to sleep. Back in your tents, I presume. What happened after that? He ashes the cigarette. Nature calls. I gotta take a shit, so I get up and head to the cabin. When I unzip the tent, though, I, I can't see the dirt in front of me. It's that dark outside. Pitch black. No moon? He shrugs. Wasn't looking for one. All I know is I've got to take a shit, and I'm not about to use the outhouse. It smells worse than death. So I make my way to the cabin. Once I get inside, though, this weird feeling comes over me. Weird feeling? Like I'm being watched. Promising. The place feels empty. Lonely. It's just me and the bugs and the light from my phone. The light's making shadows out of everything. The dusty fridge, the cluttered shelves, and the messy counters. There's a thousand shapes all around me, shifting with every step I take, and this feeling of, I don't know, dread comes over me, like I'm not safe. The man pauses. Sweat beads down his forehead. Sorry, I just haven't thought about it in this much detail since the night it happened. Don't worry. Events are messy things, and more often than not, they leave scars. Okay. Take your time. He gives himself a minute, catches his breath. Like I said, I I don't feel safe in there, but I'm drunk enough that it doesn't faze me. I still got a buzz going on from earlier in the night, you know? I think to myself, I came to take a shit and some spooky shadows aren't going to stop me. (laughs) 
He chuckles to himself, shakes his head. But a few seconds later, I'm in the bathroom and locking the door behind me. I figure, why take the chance? <laughs> He's nervous, jittery. His legs bouncing up and down and shaking the table. It's beginning to affect my ability to write. Would you like a glass of water? I'm fine. Humor me. I grab the jug and pour him a cup, sliding it across the table. He eyes it for a moment and then grips the glass, bringing it to his lips and downing it in one swig. I pour him another. He wipes his lips. So I'm about to unbuckle and do my business when I see movement. It's in the top corner of the bathroom, in one of those little toilet windows, like the type that's clouded on the bottom for privacy or whatever, but clear on the top to let in light. I've seen those. Is that where you witnessed the event? That's where I saw the smile. Jagged Janice. Describe it. Honestly, I... I'd rather not describe the smile, if we could. Wouldn't it be better to just talk about the event instead? The smile is part of the event. It's important that we get as many details as possible, no matter how uncomfortable your memories may be. He looks down and his eyes drift out of focus. The smile is just a row of teeth, but the teeth are too big and too sharp to belong to a human. And there are just so many of them. I check my notes, consulting descriptions of jagged Janice listed in old email chains from the early 2000s. I'd like to hear more about these teeth. Why? The teeth are important. Describe them, please. The man is uncomfortable. He's shifting in his seat like quicksand. And when he talks, his voice cracks. But he gives me what I want. The teeth are uh, jagged. Serrated, almost. Their length is all over the place. Some barely break her gums, others stretch down, cutting to her lips. His fingers move again. They're tapping on the metal table. Tap, tap, tap. When I see the smile, my heart starts pounding. I'm frozen there, standing in the dark bathroom with just the light from my phone. My mind's reeling, but I know that whoever that smile belongs to, I don't want them seeing me. So I hold my phone up against my chest, tight as I can. I smother the light. The light? Did the woman showcase an adverse reaction to it? Janice, according to her legend, loathes light. The man shakes his head. No. 
know. I can't remember small details. He pauses and reaches for his glass of water before taking another gulp. At that point, my body's mostly just adrenaline. There's a storm of it coursing through me and screaming at me to run or scream or fight this bitch or just do something, anything. But I can't. I just stand there, staring at her inhuman teeth and at her horrible twisted smile with my phone clutched against my chest like a crucifix. And then the smile begins to fall away, lowering itself until it's just a blur behind the foggy part of the window. In its place are two eyes. The man takes a breath, shuddering, trembling. They're wide, angled, all wronged, and they're leaking this black fluid. They dart around the washroom as if looking for something. I stay still, still as I can, like I'm fucking paralyzed. There's no light in the room, none except the bits of moon framing the fucking monster in the window, so I let myself meld into the darkness. I don't move an inch, and I pray to God the creature can't see me there. He shivers, reaches for his cigarette, and takes a drag. Then I hear tapping on the window. Tap, tap, tap. It's followed by this chattering sound. And it takes me a second, but I realize it's her teeth gnashing together, open and shut and open and shut over and over again. I don't want to look at her. I don't. But part of me can't stop myself. And I glance over and I see her eyes staring right back at me. Two tiny black dots in a sea of white. My breathing stops. My pulse races. Dribbles of piss run down my leg. It's just the two of us now, watching one another. I leaned forward, my interest peaked. Much of his description could have been pulled from the jagged Janus legend itself. The small black pupils. The rows of inhuman teeth. I check off the features on my clipboard as he goes. What does she do when you lock eyes with her? He swallows. She speaks. What does she say? She... She she says... I see you. I write the words down and circle them three times. They're not familiar to me. Describe her voice to me. Did she sound old, young? Her voice was quiet, hard to hear. The words sounded like they'd been pulled out of a wood chipper. Their pronunciation was 
broken and unnatural, like they'd been cut up by those teeth. Curious. Her fingers reach up. She taps the glass again. Tap, tap, tap. I chance another look. And all I can see is her terrible serrated smile in the window. It's making me feel nauseous. I've never been that scared, you know? I close my eyes, wanting the feeling to go away for just a second. But when I open them again, the smile's gone. (laughs) It's just me, alone in the bathroom. He puts his face in his hands and lets the armor fall away. His shoulders quake with silent sobs. I give him a minute. Then another. Is that all? No response. It becomes apparent that his account has reached its conclusion. Disappointing, to say the least. A harrowing experience. I give my form a final swipe with my pen. With a sigh, I stand up from my chair, reaching out to shake his hand. On behalf of the facility, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to share it with me. The man's sobs taper off. He blinks up at me with red, puffy eyes, and when he speaks, his voice is barely there at all. It's not over. There's more. My heart thrums as I pull back my handshake. A smile slips across my face as I sit back down in my chair, centering my clipboard in front of me. Something else occurred? He wipes his nose on his sleeve. Yeah. The next few hours turned into a nightmare. I click my pen, skin prickling with goosebumps. Now it's my turn to take a breath, to center myself and calm my nerves. You don't say. How very unfortunate. Yeah, you could say that. Please continue, then. It it takes me ten minutes before I can muster the courage to crack the bathroom door. When I do, I do it gently, quietly. You can hardly even hear the shitty hinges creak, that's how careful I am. I peek out of the crack, looking for the smiling woman, terrified that I'm going to see her standing in the living area waiting for me. No. There's nobody else in the cabin. It's just me. So I step out, moving across the hardwood floor. It creaks and groans with every step I take, and each time that it does, my heart skips a beat, and I expect to see her jump out of the darkness. I'm seeing that fucking smile everywhere now. 
in every shadow, in every window. I want to shout. I want to scream. I want to call out to my friends in the tent and beg them to pull me out of this horror. But they're beyond the cabin door. Up there at the far end of the yard. They're a world away. And your phone? You never thought to use that to call for help? He rolls his eyes. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm on a backwater island off the coast of rural BC. I've got great cell service out there. He shakes his head. I couldn't get a cell signal if I climbed at the top of the tallest tree. My phone was a glorified flashlight. A fair point. Since I can't call for help, I psych myself up. I've got my hand on the front doorknob, and I'm ready to fling open the door and scream bloody murder, run to my friends and tell them that we need to start the truck now because there's a fucking monster on the island. And that's when I hear it. His fingers thrum the metal desk. Tap. 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 In the window, next to the front door. I see a long arm in a frayed sleeve, with crooked fingers playing against the glass. They're drumming a rhythm. Something awful, it's noise masquerading a song. And I hear her again. I see you, she says in a gravelly, guttural voice. Tapping gets faster, heavier. I pull away from the window, from the door, and fall back into the shadows of the cabin. She must be twelve feet tall, because her head cranes down into the window frame, all the way from the top of it. Her eyes are gleaming in the moonlight darting around and swiveling in ways that she shouldn't be able to. She's searching again. For something. Me, maybe. I don't know. The man finishes his cigarette and slips a fresh one out of the pack. He lights it, trembling, and sucks in on the nicotine. His expression softens. She's gone. Gone? Again? There's nothing in the jagged Janus mythology that indicates her vanishing and reappearing at regular intervals. Gone. I'm alone. Time passes. Minutes, maybe hours, I don't know. I just sit there in the living room. My eyes and ears straining for any sound, any movement, anything at all. I'm shaking and breathing in short bursts, terrified if I breathe too heavily she'll hear me. I wonder to myself how long it's been. How long 
there's still to go until the sun rises and somebody wakes up and comes to check on me or use the washroom. I think about using my phone to check the time, but the idea of its backlight giving me away terrifies me, so I don't. I just sit there and wait. Uh, How long do you wait until morning? He laughs. Takes another drag and gnaws at his fingernail. Fuck no. (laughs) It takes a while, but eventually I get calmer. Or maybe too scared to keep sitting there and doing nothing. Maybe I just need to reassure myself that this nightmare has an ending. I don't know. I'm fucking quivering as I pull my phone out of my pocket. Shaking like a leaf. I turn it on, and my home screen lights up my face like I'm about to tell a campfire story. What time is it? 3.34 a.m. Two hours from sunrise at that time of year. The man sighs, running a hand along his jaw. (sighs) It's too long for me. I can't do it, you know? I decide I need to do something now before that woman comes back because I have this horrible feeling the next time she shows up, it's going to be inside the cabin. She's going to find me. So I tell myself to make her run for it. Wake up my friends. It's easy, I think. I'll open my mouth and fucking scream my lungs out. And that way... Even if she gets in my way, then at least everybody on the island will wake up, and maybe I'll get out of there in one piece. So I do it. I open my mouth, and I scream. But nothing happens. His expression darkens. Tears slip from the corners of his eyes, and his lip trembles all over again. No sound comes out. Instead, a hand that's long and crooked wraps itself around my mouth. It pulls my head back, and I smell rot and decay and seaweed, and a voice whispers in my ear like a lawnmower, I see you. Janice. I lean forward, gazing at him expectantly. How did you get away? He wipes at his eyes, choking back the last of his sobs. No idea. I blacked out. When I woke up, I wasn't in the cabin anymore. I was in a hospital bed surrounded by my friends. Same ones from the cabin? That's right. I check a box on my form labeled Survivor. Then I chew on the back of my pen for a second before checking a second box. Post-traumatic stress affected. And what do these friends say? Anything useful? Oh, they tell me it's all their fault. 
M mumbles about how we should have never come out to the cabin in the first place. Steve and Haley are blaming themselves for letting me get exceptionally drunk. (sighs) He cracks a bittersweet smile. Everyone wants a share of the guilt. My eyes drift down to the man's file. You said the island was remote. I'll assume the hospital wasn't local to it. No, it was off the island. An hour or so inland. I must have been out for a day at least, though, because I don't remember ever traveling there. Interesting. A recurring aspect of the Janus mythology is a sense of mild amnesia and the presence of minor to severe bite wounds. What did the hospital treat you for? A mild concussion and water in my lungs. Water in your lungs? I shake my head, dropping my pen. Perhaps I should be happy the young man survived whatever terror visited him that night. But so many pieces of his story don't match the mythology at all. You're certain. Water in your lungs. Yeah, that's right. The doctors didn't understand it either. I never even got a chance to take a dip in the ocean, let alone drown in it. I lean back in my chair, folding my arms. Okay, let me get this straight. Your friends pop by, leave you some get-well cards, and you get discharged a couple of days later. Does that about sum things up? The man looks away, rubbing his arm. (sighs) Not exactly. Before they leave, I tell them about the smiling woman. I ask them if they've seen a tall woman with razor-sharp teeth lurking around the island. Steve and Haley look at each other like I must have hit my head harder than anybody thought. The look in their eyes. It's like they're terrified I've given myself brain damage. Steve squeezes my arm and apologizes over and over for doing shots with me. Says he should have gone easy for the first night. Haley agrees. Says I drove them all the way out there, so they should have let me get some sleep. And your other friend? Emily? She's standing back, staring at me, and her eyes are filled with, I don't know, regret? But it's different from Steve and Haley. She doesn't look like she feels sorry for me. She looks like she really blames herself for all of this. I say her name, Emily. Ask her if she's seen the woman, because I get a sense that she has. I slide my pen down my clipboard and circle a word that says witness, before annotating it with a small question mark. How does she respond? (sighs) She leaves. I don't think she wants to talk about the woman. At least, not in front of Haley and Steve. Pretty soon everybody leaves. It's just me again, in some tiny hospital on the outskirts of nowhere. The only company I've got is this apple tree outside my window and the shitty TV. 
I sleep pretty uneasily that night, tossing, turning. I wake up at one point at the sound of tapping, and I stare out of my window, horrified, expecting to see that woman again. But it's just the apple tree. <laughs> its branches are brushing against the glass. And I wonder to myself if this is just my life from now on. <laughs> if every time I hear the faintest sound at night, I'm going to wake up in cold sweats thinking that woman's come back for me. Then the door creaks open. My body goes into full-blown panic. My breath hitches in my chest, my muscles tighten, and it's like that night all over again with the smiling woman where I can't move an inch for fear. But it's just Emily. She pauses in the doorway and asks me if she can come in. I tell her that of course she can, and she does, not bothering to turn on the lights. When she gets to my bedside, I can see her face more clearly by the light of the window. She looks rough. Her eyes have these heavy bags, and her cheeks are all red and splotchy from crying. She's wiping snot on her sleeve and telling me sorry over and over and over. Sorry for what? Inviting you out to the cabin? I'm doing my best not to roll my eyes. I've never seen a group of friends with such a guilty conscience. No. She says she's sorry for not warning me about the woman. She says she thought the woman was gone. Otherwise, she'd have never come back to that place. I snap forward, eyes latching onto his. What? She told you she knew about the woman? He nods. She said the circumstances of her brother's death were different than she'd originally told us. He didn't drown. Not accidentally. He was murdered. A woman attacked them on the beach. A woman with a terrible smile and this tangle of black, messy hair that covered her face. She dragged Em's brother backward through the sand, muffling his screams with her hand, telling him, To the sea with you. And then held him under the surf. She kept him there until he stopped moving. And then... She let the tide take him away. Disturbing. And she never brought this up to her parents? She did. Her father told her it was just her imagination. He said her brother had fallen into the ocean and gotten swept away and was already hard enough to deal with without Emily adding to it. So Emily just buried the memory. Moved on. The man looks up at me, his expression despondent. And that's when we hear it. In the hospital room. Tapping. Tap, tap, tap. It comes from the window to my right. The one with the old apple tree. The woman? I don't look. I tell Emily not to look either. 
Tell her to focus on me. Ignore the sound. I don't know what she saw as a little girl down by the ocean, but I know I don't want her to see what I saw in that cabin. He shudders. I don't want her to see that smile. Does she listen to you? He grips a fistful of his hair, closes his eyes. No. She looks, and when she does, she screams. She screams so loudly that the lights come on down the hall, and I hear the night nurse call out and start running. Emily rushes to the window. I catch sight of it from the corner of my eye because I still refuse to look at that pane of glass, but I hear Emily beating against it with her fists, clawing at it with her nails, and the nurse bursts in and pulls Emily away, calls a patrol car to drive her home. The man takes a breath. He puts his face in his hands and rubs his eyes. I text her an hour later, just to make sure that she's okay. Yes? I glance at the folder on my desk labeled Correspondence, then down at the watch on my wrist. It's three in the morning and I'm jet-lagged. The meat of the man's story appears to have run its course. If the texts are everything that's left, then I can read them on my own. I rise from the desk and offer my hand to shake. He gives it a weak, reluctant squeeze, avoiding my eyes. Then he leaves the room without another word. I sigh, sitting back down in the steel chair. Another long day, another dead end. I adjust my glasses and pull out the text logs. There's only a handful of message receipts. The chance is slim, but the possibility that there's something in there about Jagged Janice entices me too much to set them aside for tomorrow. I begin to read. As I do, I make note of the timestamps. Words do a good job of painting a picture, but time and location lend context to everything. 134, Dorian. Are you okay? 212, Emily. Not really. 212, Dorian. Did you see her? 245, Dorian. Em, I'm sorry. That was a stupid text. 245, Emily. It's fine. 246. I'm guessing you don't feel like talking. 246. Actually, it might be good for me. 247. I never got a chance to tell you earlier, but I can't imagine how horrible it must have felt to see what happened to your brother and have your dad not believe you. That's fucked. 2.55 It's fine. We were never close anyway. 
255. Sorry to hear. Did you ever tell your mom? I mean, before she passed? 256. No. Mom was already dying by then, and Dad would have killed me. 256. Fuck. I'm an asshole. How could I forget something like that? I'm sorry again. 257. You're not an asshole. You're right that I would have told her about Jonas if I could have. 259. By then, she was so hopped up on painkillers, though, that I hardly even recognized her. Three. The meds must have been pretty heavy. That's a lot to deal with for a four-year-old kid. 301. Yeah, her esophageal cancer was bad. She was in a lot of pain near the end and rarely in a good mood. Pretty sure Dad was having an affair at the time, too, fucking prick. 301. I'm sorry. That's a shitty memory to bring up. 303. Don't be. I think I repressed a lot of old memories of her, which probably isn't healthy. 305. Honestly, if it wasn't for you, I'd probably think I was going crazy right now. 305. Why? 306. I saw her, too. 306. The smiling woman. 307. M? 334. My mother. 334. I see my mother. I stare at the last word in stunned silence. Her mother? Could she actually have been the origin of the legend? I rub a hand along my jaw, considering what I've heard of Emily's history. She had only been four years old at the time of her brother's death when she had witnessed a crazed woman drag him into the sea. A woman who she couldn't identify because black hair obscured her face. Could that woman have been her own mother? It doesn't seem terribly likely. But it doesn't seem impossible either. Children often reframe moments of terror in a bid to understand the incomprehensible. I reach for my briefcase, unclasping the latches on the front and pulling out my laptop. I take a breath and then open up the database software. Emily's easy enough to find. Her last name is plastered everywhere across her social media, so I plug that in. The search function isn't the fastest, but it does the trick. It takes 30 seconds for the tiny rotating hourglass to stop spinning. And when it does, I see her. Subject, Emily Caldwell. Father, Harold Caldwell. Mother, Janice Caldwell. Deceased. 
I swallow, my hands shaking on the keyboard. Had I finally found Jagged Janice? I pour myself a glass of water, finishing it in two giant swigs. It does little to calm my nerves. Still, it's one piece of the puzzle solved. But really, it just creates more questions. It doesn't explain several aspects of the man's story. The water in the lungs, for instance. Or the vanishing. Certain pieces of his encounter don't add up, at least not compared against the original legend. There's a knock on the door. Three sharp raps with a knuckle. I get up to answer, thinking maybe the man's forgotten his phone or wants to give me back my pack of smokes. When I open the door, though... There's nobody. I raise an eyebrow and head back to my laptop. I need to discover the source for these changes. These departures from the Jagged Janus mythology. This time I bring up my web browser, navigating to one of my preferred resources on urban legends. The website's a bit corny, but it's proven accurate, and its community aspect has been invaluable in my research. After some scrolling, I bring up the Jagged Janus article. People can leave anecdotal encounters beneath the main text, and sometimes they do. Usually they're all bullshit. One of them catches my eye, however. It mentions seeing the serrated smile, the tapping fingers, and... that they found their infant child dead with water in its lungs. I shake my head. A coincidence, that's all. I keep scrolling. More keywords jump out at me. There and then gone. Voice like a meat grinder. To the sea with you. I pause. Those were the words Emily said. Words she remembered when she witnessed her brother being pulled into the ocean. To the sea with you. My mind spins, but a picture is forming. The guttural, difficult-to-understand voice. The drowned brother, the words... I see you. No, she was never saying those words, not really. She was saying, to the sea with you. The man misheard, or perhaps he couldn't properly understand because of Janice's damaged voice. In his panic, he likely defaulted to the simplest sounding phrase. My heart races. I reach for my phone to make a call, to tell my boss what I found. It wasn't long ago the facility had an incident with the man with a red notepad, the one in which we learn the core principle of all legends, and one which cost many people their lives. That legends evolve. If the Jagged Janus legend has evolved, we need to allocate additional resources to locating it and neutralizing it. I continue to scroll, noticing many of the anecdotes have been posted in the last week. Several in the last few days. If even half of them are true, 
it'd imply highly increased activity on Janice's part. I hear another knock at the door. Three soft raps. I curse, kicking off from my desk and storming to the door, phone still pressed to my face, waiting for my boss to pick up. Once more, I swing it open, and once more, I look down a cold, empty hallway. I slam the door shut and stalk back to the table. My phone continues to ring, and my boss continues to ignore my call. It's really not like her, but I tell myself to relax. She's probably sleeping. According to my watch, it's late as hell. 3.34 in the morning, to be precise. That makes me an asshole, maybe, but this discovery is too big. Too dangerous to ignore. Janice is out there, and she's on the move. Three more knocks ring out. These are softer than before. More gentle. Almost taps. As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace No Sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski. Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.